Hi guys, this is Betty Wild from Monsters and Mothers. If this is your first time here to the show, we have recently moved to Anchor.com. If you would like to subscribe to all five seasons, please click the link in the bio or visit me at MonstersandMothers.com. Hi there, this is Betty Wild, and thank you for joining us today on Monsters and Mothers. Today I have a case here. Once you know all the facts, once you embrace all the players and see through the eyes of all that were affected, you find yourself standing alongside of them, feeling their pain. And for what feels like almost an internal moment, you become part of that connection, part of the family, part of the loss, and you're left with this silent shock that you are so still. And then the realization kicks in that this is not a movie. This is real. As little girls and boys, we look up at the glowing angel that gave us life with love and adoration. But for too many, this is not a happy reality. For many, the woman holding us is a true monster. These are their nightmares. Delve deep as we unravel the turbulent bonds between mother and child. You are listening to Monsters and Mothers with your host, Betty Wild. If you haven't already done so, I recommend you watch the documentary, Dear Zachary. This documentary will rip you up. It chronicles the events surrounding the deaths of baby Zachary Turner and his father, Andrew Bagby, at the hands of the psychopath, Shirley Jane Turner, who was pregnant with baby Zachary when she killed his father, Andrew. Today is about this woman who would, for a time, become the most hated woman of our time. Evil does have a name, and it's Shirley Jane Turner. Now, when we think about all the steps that could have been taken to stop this from happening, and we look at every turn, every angle, every possibility, all the ways that this could have stopped before it began, we drive ourselves mad. But the courts are flawed, the medical institutions are flawed, and we as humans are flawed. This was one big fuck-up. Shirley Turner didn't just come out of the woodworks. She left an impression on every man in her path, as well as employers and her children. So it was no surprise that this would be her life story. Starting at the beginning... Shirley Jane Turner, born in January of 1961 to an American serviceman from Kansas, stationed in St. Anthony, and married to a local woman. The two moved to Wichita, Kansas in 1953, where they had four children, including Shirley. The couple divorced, and in 1968, the woman returned to Newfoundland with her three children. Now, this is important to the case because Turner, Shirley Turner, was born on United States soil, and raised in Canada. So she was automatically granted a dual citizenship, and this would later be proved to be the punch in the gut that causes you to scream at the television when you watch the documentary. Growing up in her household, the Turner household, one could coin them as very poor. They lived poorly, like gypsies, nomads, they were on welfare, and they lived in Daniels Harbor 
of the Great Northern Peninsula. This would be where the seed was born for Shirley to get the hell out of her poor existence and become something. She had set her eyes on medicine, and she dreamed of becoming a doctor and being respected and never worrying about money or food ever again. And it was admirable. As much as I want to detract that, it was admirable. That's probably the only thing I find positive about her, was that she really was reaching and wanted to be something better. Unfortunately, that came at the cost of her family and children. And even though they urged her, almost begged her to let it go because of what it was doing to the family, she refused. Now, in 1980, Turner entered the Memorial University in St. John's, This is where she stated the intention of becoming a medical doctor, a goal she would achieve even though it did cost her her family and anyone who dared to stand in her way. Now, in 1982, while she was working on her undergraduate degree, Shirley became pregnant and eventually married a man from Parsons Pond. After the birth of her son, she began to exhibit the postpartum psychosis, and this began her downward spiral into an unusual need to control others, usually through her rage. These came at the expense of her mother-in-law, who turned her all but cut out of her child's life. And oddly, this woman would be, in the end, the only person in her life that wanted anything to do with her. Turner and her first husband, they remained married for a few years from 1981 to 1987. During this time, she did abandon her undergraduate degree. She found some work as a science teacher in Labrador City. She had her second child. It was a girl this time. And eventually, she did begin an affair with a former lover located in the south coast of Labrador. This, like the behavior toward her sympathetic mother-in-law was perhaps indicative of her manipulative and borderline sociopathic tendencies. The affair lasted for a number of years, and the lengths Turner went to in order to pull it off remained staggering. Her husband at the time was working in the mines and found it difficult to get time off of work, but Turner would, under the guise of visiting family back home, travel back to Parsons Pond, where she would dump her kids off to her relatives and head to St. Barb. From there, she took a ferry to the south coast of Labrador, where she would meet up with her lover. In July of 1988, she got got pregnant. She did have an abortion with her new lover. Uh, But this was after the split of her husband, however. And the two eventually married in July of 1988. Now, after having her third child in 1990, which was also another girl, Turner and her lover, who was a fisherman, began falling out, and eventually they separated in 91. Now, Shirley quite often put her education before anyone in the family, even though her family, again, urged her to quit altogether to avoid what it was already doing, which was tearing up the family. But she quit her job instead, and she returned back to school to complete her undergraduate degree. This was what was more important to her, 
Now, before graduating in 94, she decided that she's going to move back into an apartment in St. John's, and apparently this is when she started experiencing financial difficulties. Her second husband, from whom she was just married to, moved in to help her into the apartment, and he cared for the two other children so that she could go to school. So, But even though they were like living separately, they were still under the same roof, he was just helping her out. But then this household became super toxic, and the children were subjected to her daily abuse of them. In October of 93, all of a sudden, in October of 93, all of a sudden, reports surfaced that Shirley Turner was treating two of her three children so poorly that a man who had been renting from them reported her for child abuse. He was alarmed by the behavior that he moved out of the apartment and he brought up the incidents to the attention of the psychiatrist at Memorial. And the therapist would later then tell to the social workers that the older daughter was being struck in the face by her mother for no reason and that Shirley always swore and cursed at the children. She would also leave her daughter, who was the older one, though, she would leave her alone on the weekends and on evenings, and even going to school. She had to go to school on a bus by herself, and this was going on for two months. Most of the abuse was directed towards the older daughter. But when the children were interviewed, they confirmed and also added that they were struck with open hands and belts. And now what kills me is that... It's, what kills me is that, unfortunately, it's so despicable, our system, that time and time again this keeps happening and are always failing our little ones. The abuse report was filed to social services, which, remember, had the backing of a third-party witness a respected therapist, and the children themselves. And all of a sudden, the case was closed on January 11th of 1994. Without anyone from the department having even spoken to the mother in question, it was just closed. And herein lies the road that would repeatedly enable Turner's pathology. Now, later, in 1994, Turner would go to the Memorial Department of Medicine for further education. She would be returning to St. John's from Parsons Pond and announced to her family then that she would not be taking her children. So the two oldest children remained with the mother-in-law while the youngest was sent to Portland Creek with Turner's second husband. Now, this arrangement lasted for about a year, um, and then after she was done with her education, they eventually joined their mother back in St. John's in 1995, and this was after she completed everything. Now, Turner was again telling family members that looking after her children was a hindrance to her academic pursuits. Despite that she actually won custody of all three children, by 1997, they were all back with their fathers in Parsons Pond and in Portland Creek. This arrangement would remain in place for the rest of Turner's education. Now, during her residencies in 97, Turner's pseudo-dad that she was raised with and the only real connection that she had with the father became terminal, but also at that time her mother was leaving him. And this stressor is what one of the reasons why Shirley Turner's controlling and abusive behavior just 
catapulted into Overford Drive. This relationship breakdown, coupled with her now two failed marriages, it might have been what we see Turner, where we see her literally just go off the rails. And this was actually all happening during the beginning of her medical residencies. Now, in 1998, she was living alone, and she graduated med school and began her residencies. Now, they paint a picture of her as this caring resident that was eager to not just learn, but to apply her considerable intelligence to patients. This was a letter that was actually sent out, but this was actually a boilerplate letter that was sent out to all the residents. So it made you think that, yes, Shirley was this person, but in fact, they were addressing everyone the same way. And the reviews, however, from the other residents in St. John were anything but positive. In 1999 to 2000, she interned at St. John and all her dealings with the doctors, especially two of them, were borderline hostile and uncomfortable, they said. Turner's residency that was set to begin on the 11th of November was delayed because she decided to report to work two days late. And then when she came in, she was armed with a list of days that were convenient for her to work, along with an expectation that she be given priority scheduling over the other residents. Her reasoning was her children, who, you may recall, no longer actually lived with her. Now, on an occasion where the physician was critical of Turner, she demanded that his comments not be included in her residency report. And when he refused, she is said to have actually become confrontational, yelling at the physician while crying and saying loudly that she was being treated unfairly. Twice she called him to discuss the matter, and twice she hung up on him in a rage. Now, given her apparent sterling record of service with the Grenfell Health, the previous year, the physician also says that Turner would often lie to his face about matters big and small and would become furious whenever he called her out on it. She was permitted to leave the first period of residency early to visit her children on the West Coast. The physician then saw Shirley at Memorial University the next day, and she never did go visit her children. During this remedial rotation, several patient concerns were raised. Several longtime patients stopped showing up altogether after dealing with Shirley, and her behavior was such that the supervising physicians were afraid to even speak to her at all openly. None of them wanted to be alone with her at all. And they were fearful of what she would say, either immediately or afterwards. Her growing number of lies that she would turn into screaming rage monster lies and monster behavior that many were all too familiar with. One of the supervising physicians reported, I felt I was being manipulated whenever I spoke with Shirley Turner. I always felt Shirley Turner was putting on a show as if she were playing the role, but had no feeling for her work. Now that sounds like the making of a psychopath to me. 
The supervising physician, though, despite describing Turner as displaying psychopathic tendencies and being a near-pathological liar who would try to escalate any discussions about her behavior into conflict, never once thought that he should send her to a psychiatrist. But instead of dealing with her any longer, decided that it would be best that she become someone else's problem. And just like social services did, they failed to contact Turner about the abuse allegations. So there you have it. You have a few few circumstances where she was being abusive and someone could have stopped her and done something about it. But they looked the other way and they figured out of sight, out of mind, someone else's problem, I don't have to deal with it. They pushed it on to the next person. Now, after his assessment, the physician also added that Dr. Turner, remember Shirley, was she, she was in fact now a doctor of medicine. He actually referred to her as acute and petite and always looked injured. She just fooled everyone. Her mental health issues did not seem to match her outward appearance. So despite the cancerous nature of her time spent with the supervisor, he still pitied her. It was discovered that her oldest was now turning 18 and entering college for his undergrad. This conflicted with all the student loans that Turner had taken out, which were dependent on the fact that she was a single mother living with her kids. And this is how she got the grants. But she wasn't living with her kids anymore. And that was causing her great stress. This wouldn't be enough to stop her from pushing forward, though. So she soon met another man who was nine years younger than her, and she began to see him sexually. And over the next two years, the relationship would escalate, almost along the lines, though, of fatal attraction. Shirley, after they had met, the man contacted Shirley to tell her he was going to be moving for work and that he did not want to keep the long-distance relationship going. Now, this is part of the freaky, scary films where the audience clenches their butts because they're waiting for the ex-wielding girlfriend to just go ballistic on the guy. Now, Turner's response to this was to repeatedly call him over and over and over again to the point of madness till he finally caved only to the barrage of her violent temper coming at him. But he did it because he thought he was going to calm her down from the ceiling. And just then, when he thought he could breathe again and start over, whoop, there she was. He landed a new job, and she ramped up her pursuit on him and personally attacked him until, finally, he gave in in order to avoid the police getting involved. And then she just refused to leave. This would have been a great time for her to start medication, don't you think? Now, feeling intimidated, he gave in and let her stay. And this was early summer of 98, and she would remain there for more than a month. On one occasion, she would almost break his jaw by wielding her shoes. She had these high-heeled shoes, and she whacked him across the face. And this was after they came home from a party. And he says that this made it very clear to him the capacity of her violence. On another occasion, he actually brought her to the emergency room where she was admitted and held overnight for a psychiatric examination. This man moved across again to Pennsylvania, hoping he would never see Shirley Turner again. But he would. Remember the dual citizenship we brought up? Now, then, 
this crazy woman traveled to Pennsylvania, found the man's apartment, and according to the police, he found her in a black dress with a dozen red roses in her arms, attempting to overdose. She was slumped lifeless against the doorframe, holding two letters. One, a suicide note, and the other, a letter to her former psychiatrist and friend. Shirley Turner told the responders that she had taken some pills and wanted to die. Now, ominously, the letter to her former psychiatrist, also a close friend, read, I am not evil, just sick. Now, let me remind you that all of this happened before her two residencies in St. John. It's unbelievable that she would even be given a license to practice medicine. Now, this is where the story truly begins. After her failed suicide attempt, she is completely now another person altogether. And she is coming apart at the seams. This is where she would meet Andrew. And the world would become fragile and still for a moment in time. Before they met, Andrew was engaged to a young woman who flew with him to St. John's. But the relationship eventually broke down and the two decided amicably to dissolve their engagement. This woman will later factor prominently in the understanding of Turner's path to murder. In 1999, Andrew and Shirley were a couple. Turner was nearly 13 years older than Andrew Bagby, which may or may not have played a role in her ability to control and manipulate him as the relationship grew. Now, by all accounts, Andrew was the kind, such a kind and caring person. He spent time with her children when they visited and even gave away his computer to her son. But also, Andrew remained close with his ex. And Shirley Turner, as you can imagine, did not deal well with this. As Turner's mood swings worsened, so did her ability to be amicable, with the woman she perceived as being a threat to the relationship. Turner would routinely accuse the woman of trying to steal Andrew from her, leaving unhinged voice messages and openly threatening this woman. On occasion, after Andrew's parents, Kathleen and David, invited the woman to a family function, Turner escalated things even further. By now, the young woman had completely moved on, and she was romantically involved with another man, but Turner didn't care. She cornered her in a room and made wild accusations before confronting her again a few months later to apologize for what she said. This, of course, was another example of her mood swings. Now, by 2000, Andrew completed his medical school, and was looking at positions for his post-education residency and eventually found an arrangement in Syracuse, New York. Shirley Turner decided to move south as well, though, not to New York. She accepted a position with Trimark Physicians Corporation at Fort Dodge, where she would be placed in Sac City Clinic owned by the company. It's important at this stage to remember that Turner wanted to be in medicine chiefly for the financial benefits, and her salary with Trimac is perhaps the reason she chose to go to Sac City, not to join her partner in Syracuse. Her initial compensation was estimated to be about $171,000, 
That's roughly a quarter of a million dollars in 2019. Now, the long-distance relationship arrangement did not exactly do wonders for Turner's mental state. Reports inferred that Andrew may have broken off or attempted to slow down the relationship, stating, apparently Dr. Turner and Dr. Bagby departed Newfoundland together with the intention of continuing their romantic relationship in the United States, while some semblance of their relationship appears to have continued after the summer of 2000, there was a long-distance romance. The entire time each of them resided in the United States, this was for a period of about 14 months, so they lived approximately about a 1,000 miles apart. Now, between July of 2000, when Andrew settled into Syracuse, Turner is said to have visited him seven times and had him come visit her just once. This, and the fact that she footed the bill nearly all the travel, is perhaps indicative of one-sided nature of this relationship at this point. And still, there was at least, still, things were at least peaceful until a visit Turner made to Andrew's apartment in May 2001. Now, this meeting was both upsetting and bizarre. On May 29th, 8.15 a.m. local time, Shirley Turner left Andrew's apartment and for reasons that escape logical examination, called him to inform him that she had forgotten to lock the apartment's security door. The door is all that prevented a would-be burglar from accessing the interior of the building, but even so, it was only Andrew and Turner that had keys to the apartment. When Andrew got home, he eventually realized that several of his belongings were missing. These items included his laptop computer, a lighter, his checkbook, his Palm Pilot, and his collection of movies and CDs. All items of personal attachment. And you can guess who made off with Andrew's things. Police have stated that there was no sign of forced entry, no witnesses reporting shady behavior, and no indication that any of the security doors had been tampered with. The only people who had access to that building were those with security key cards, in Turner's case, those who had been in the building that morning. Now, this was not the extent of Turner's increasingly worrying behavior. A few months before her passive burglary, she flew her now nearly adult children to Iowa, where the group would travel to California to visit Andrew's parents. Now, after the two of the children were missing their connecting flight in Toronto, they eventually made it to California, getting into physical altercations with her eldest daughter and went so far as to slapping her in the face. Now, by 2001, about a year before Andrew's murder, Turner's behavior was beginning to catch up with her. Roughly a year after accepting the position with Trimark, who had expected her to fulfill a contract of roughly 10 years in Sac City, Turner abruptly quits and moved south to Council Bluffs, Iowa. Now, having taken several advances on her salary from Trimark, she now owed them about $160,000. But Turner moved into an apartment in Council Bluff and found work at a family medicine practice, despite not having a license to practice in this jurisdiction. Turner became paranoid. During a visit in September of 2001, Andrew's ex fiance called. 
Turner answered the phone and lied to the woman, saying that she was pregnant by Andrew, but, in an unfortunate turn of events, Shirley did become pregnant. And also, time would stand still at the knowledge of that. On October 16th of 2001, Shirley bought a semi-automatic 22 caliber handgun. This is the weapon that would be used to murder Andrew Bagby a year later. Both before and after her October 2000 visit to Andrew, Shirley received training in the handling of this firearm, and her instructor noted that the gun was of poor quality and had a telltale signature in that it would not properly feed ammunition into the chamber, which resulted in the accidental ejection of live rounds. Now, during the visit that would change everything, Turner became convinced that Andrew was sleeping with another clerk in radiology, as well as a blonde doctor he worked with. They argued. Then the radiology clerk received two anonymous phone calls that are confirmed to actually be from Turner. The first instructed the clerk to go to the library, which she did. But she found nothing and no one there and returned soon home afterwards to find a message on her answering machine. On November 3rd, the day Andrew was supposed to see the clerk, he drove Shirley to the airport where they had lunch before her flight back home. Andrew ended the relationship during the meal. Afterwards, Andrew went to the drugstore, where he bought a box of condoms. Two days later, Andrew was completing his morning rounds and bumped into his supervisor, who noticed Andrew was irritated. Andrew told the supervisor that Shirley appeared banging on his door early this morning. Now, he agreed to meet her at Keystone National Park and was just frustrated and stressed out about having to do that. But what Andrew didn't know, that while he was talking to his supervisor across the way at his apartment, the woman he just broke it off with and set her on a plane was now in his apartment going through his things. His colleague and supervisor advised him not to go and asked Andrew to meet him after, at least. And he agreed he would meet his supervisor that evening at 7.30 p.m. They had a social event that they were going to, but said he would, he would in fact go meet Shirley because he wanted to end it once and for all. They met in the park, and by 8.30 p.m., Andrew Bagby was shot dead in the Keystone parking garage. Andrew had been shot five times, with the sixth bullet found ejected live from the gun used to kill him. Shirley Turner, pregnant with Andrew Bagby's baby, mind you, got into her place in Council Bluffs as fast as she could, and began calling Andrew's parents several times over the next few days, asking if they had heard from him in an effort to keep up her facade. But everyone smelled a rat right away. No one, and I mean no one, who knew Andrew ever thought the couple should have been together from the beginning. They thought Shirley was awful and inappropriate, flirtatious and loud drunk, 
She was never happy. There was definitely a disconnect with her, and all had hoped that it was just a phase that their friend Andrew would at least survive. Andrew's personality and the type of person that he was it was very difficult for people to understand what was happening. He was so enamoring and joyful and jolly. If I could bring up somebody who he reminded me of, it was like being best friends with Jack Black. Whenever I saw like the, the videos in the, in the documentary, I just thought of his jolly nature and how fun and loving and just hilarious his mannerisms were. And you kind of felt for everyone because, you know, he... He brought that out in everyone. You know, he used to be a filmmaker when they were they were kids that they would all just like run around making these really funny home videos together. And it was really enjoyable to watch how close everyone was. Investigators were quickly putting their case together during this time, identifying that the shell casings were for the type of handgun that Shirley actually owned. And the live round they found was of the same brand that she had recently purchased. Shirley Turner was smart, however. She managed to get rid of the firearm and turned in all her ammunition that was manufactured by a different company while cooperating with the police. She was fast becoming the sole focus, though, in the investigation of the murder of Andrew Bagby. But she was managing to stay just barely one step ahead of everybody. She fed the police lie after lie, about her movements during the days and the days leading up to Andrew's murder. She said she had not left Council Bluff and was instead bedridden with a migraine for much of the weekend as well as Monday, November 5th, the day of the murder. She also lied about her gun being stolen. To the investigator's knowledge, the gun had been disposed of between Pennsylvania and Iowa as Shirley drove home after the murder. Shirley would be questioned by the police while she kept quiet and divulged nothing. She got an attorney, and from that point on, she stopped cooperating. She said she hasn't seen her gun since October 25th. Unfortunately, she did reveal that her firearms instructor told her not to use the gun, which led the investigators, though, to question that firearms instructor, who revealed that Turner had been using the same brand of ammunition that was found at the crime scene and that her weapon would often eject live rounds. Evidence was mounting, and the trail she left would place her in no other spot than behind the gun that killed Andrew Bagby. But to create more confusion, Shirley Turner unveiled a new lie for investigators. She said the gun was not stolen or missing. She told them that she, in fact, gave it to Andrew. It is unclear if investigators even entertain this possibility. The police did miss what could have prevented this whole tragedy. Well, the next tragedy that would appear, however, if they had only picked up the clothes on the bed that Shirley was wearing, and perhaps they would have found the evidence of the gun powder, of the blood, of the park residue on her clothing but they didn't. She did reveal her interest in leaving the U.S., though, and the police did not act quickly enough. Dr. Shirley Jane Turner returned to Newfoundland, fleeing capital murder charges in the United States for
for her alleged slaying of her ex-boyfriend, Andrew Bagby. When she left, she took with her her unborn child and any hope for justice for Andrew. The police had a motive, though. Shirley Turner did have a history of violent and unpredictable behavior, and they discovered that Andrew Bagby had in fact broken off their relationship. It would have been no problem to convince a jury of this evidence that Turner was the one who pulled the trigger and killed Bagby. They even confirmed she had been seen by, with Bagby on the night of the murder. Now, despite the fact that they failed to remove the clothes Turner wore while committing the, the murder during their search warrant, police were confident that they had their suspect. Turner had told several people, including Bagby's former fiancé, that she had a miscarriage, but this was another lie. A pregnant Turner called a cab and bought a one-way ticket to Toronto, leaving her car and the bulk of her worldly possessions behind. She told Bagby's father that she was doing this on the advice of her attorney, who advised her to flee to Canada immediately. While in Toronto, Turner's family was already beginning to doubt her innocence, since she was able to manipulate her way back to St. John's, where she took up residence with her eldest son. While in St. John's, Turner was perhaps unaware that her flight from Iowa had accelerated the investigation into her involvement with the murder of Andrew Bagby. The police seized her trash on December 2nd, and just 10 days later, the RNC arrested Shirley Turner at her home, with extradition proceedings to set, set to begin shortly thereafter. Iowa police were anxious to get Turner back in their jurisdiction, as their case was now all but solved. Her lies were now unraveling as investigators finished following up with witnesses and they were uh, ready to go to trial. Just ready. There was one complicating matter, however. Turner's pregnancy, which was causing complications for the extradition process. The judge, Justice Gail Welsh, having no knowledge of what was really going on and how much the U.S. already had as evidence against Shirley Turner, felt that Turner was not a threat to society, and they set bail for her for $75,000. Conditions were that she post the collateral, turn over her passport, check in weekly with the RNC, and stay in St. John's area, making no attempt to flee. She was also instructed not to make any contact with Bagby family during this time. All things which were just opposite of what was needed to be done. The family needed to be in touch with her because they were deeply concerned about the grandson. They needed her to be on U.S. soil. So this was not just an extradition. This was a custody dispute, and Andrew's parents wanted and would fight with everything they had to protect their grandson that Turner was still carrying. The Bagbys, Andrew's parents, moved to St. John's and retained a lawyer to fight for custody of their unborn grandson. David and Kathleen Bagby were said to be convinced entirely of Shirley Turner's guilt, that Shirley Turner was in fact a manipulative sociopath with homicidal tendencies. Unfortunately, they didn't receive the help they needed, and many of those people were not in a position to force extradition proceedings. Then, the moment 
that would bring everyone to their knees, the moment that everyone would gasp, to those that knew Andrew and his loving, giving, playful nature, and from the second he left this earth, you could feel the void of his absence, was now looking at his son for the first time. Zachary Turner was born on July 18, 2002. Baby Zachary Turner was the spitting image of Andrew, almost as if Andrew himself was reborn, and the gut instinct was to snatch that baby and bring him home, back, because that brought hope to the lives of Andrew's friends and family, so much so that Zachary's birth prompted the documentary. This baby was instantly loved, and you could see through the eyes as though you were actually staring at Andrew himself. It was uncanny. Shirley Turner refused to let the Bagbees see the child after he was born and continued to play the victim of circumstance. She was adamant that she had not killed Andrew Bagby, but instead was heartbroken because, as you'll recall, Turner was telling law enforcement and friends that they were planning to work things out. Shirley hated the Bagbees and even fired her lawyer for having too high of an opinion of them. Baby Zach did not respond to his mother or react like a newborn adoring his mother would. He did not respond to her touch, and he was reported to be detached, but he loved to be held by everyone else. However, Given Turner's history with her other children, it's not much of a stretch to assume that she also found her son a hindrance. There are reports, though un- unobstantiated, that Turner went as far as taunting the Bagbees during Zachary's first birthday party, telling them that if he loves them so much, then maybe he should go live with them. Keep in mind... This is a year after Zachary was born and approaching two years since extradition proceedings first began. As a report from a coroner not involved in the case would later state that the Newfoundland Labrador's social services never once appeared to think of the child's safety in letting a wanted accused murderer keep custody of him for more than a year. On July 4th, 2003, Just two days after Zachary's first birthday, Shirley Turner met a local St. John's man whom she dated briefly. The man wisely cut off contact when he realized who she was and learned of the pending charges against her. But Turner's old pattern of harassing behavior came back in full force. The man reported to the RNC a series of some 200 threatening phone calls that she made to his residence over the course of the next month. This was a violation of her bail and should have lost custody of her child right then and there, but they did not take that step. Because the man was afraid of his safety and declined to give his name or press charges, Shirley Turner, for what it's worth, she denied the allegations and no actions were taken by the courts. But this was a trigger for her. The common theme for all of Turner's behavior was control. 
when she was not in control of her relationship, she lashed out and began to self-destruct, and destruct she would like a bomb that would take away all hope. On August 18th of 2003, Shirley Turner, who was now sharing custody of Zachary with his grandparents, took her son to CBS, where the man she dated briefly lived. She parked in front of the man's house and left photos of herself and Zachary along with a used tampon on the front seat of her car. Earlier in the day, Turner had purchased 30 tablets of Ativan from a local pharmacy, which she used to spike Zachary's baby formula, as well as taking some herself. Police suggest that Shirley Turner was attempting to frame the man for what she was about to do. She then walked to the beach and to the end of a wharf, strapped the baby to her chest with a system full of Ativan and an unconscious Zachary. She dove into the Atlantic Ocean and both drowned. The coroner found that Zachary was unconscious before he entered the water and thus mercifully did not suffer. Shirley Turner avoided standing trial for two murders. She avoided ever facing any consequence for her behavior. The only person held liable for her was her former psychiatrist, Dr. John Dissette who was fined $10,000 payable to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which was used to cover a larger fine levied against the college. Failure to report is a crime. And what a great loss this was for so many. My heart goes out to the families and friends. And if only justice had done its job. If only people weren't so goddamn afraid of reporting what they saw, so many lives, could have been saved. I'm Betty Wild. Thank you for listening today on Monsters and Mothers. Thank you for listening to Monsters and Mothers. Subscribe to hear more chilling accounts of mothers who commit unspeakable horrors. 